Our gospel lesson this morning is found in Matthew chapter 27. We are beginning to read in verse 62, and then we'll move into chapter 28 through verse 10. The next day, that is after the day of preparation, the chief priest and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate and said, Sir, we remembered how that imposter said, while he was still alive, after three days I will rise. Therefore, order the tomb to be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples go and steal him away and tell the people he has risen from the dead, and the last fraud will be worse than the first. Pilate said to them, you have a guard of soldiers, go, make it as secure as you can. So they went and made the tomb secure by sealing the stone and setting a guard. Now after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guard trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he is risen. As he said, come see, where he is risen. As he said, come see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has gone before you to Galilee, and there you will see him. See, I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, as we come to your word today, as we hear the proclamation that our Lord Jesus Christ is up from the dead, we ask, God, that you would encourage our hearts. We ask that you will increase our faith, and we ask that we will know all the riches that are ours in him. We ask that you speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. Amen. In 1844, Edgar Allan Poe, the masterful American storyteller and pioneer of the modern detective novel, published the short story, The Purloined Letter. In the story, an important letter has gone missing from the queen's boudoir. Detectives frantically identify suspects, focusing in on one employee of the royal court, Minister D., they search his home. They scour the house from top to bottom in search of this letter, convinced that Minister D is a clever master thief. They pull up carpets. They, pull, they peel back the wallpaper. And they dismantle furniture, all in search of the document. No stone was left unturned in Minister D's home. However they found nothing, no document. The assumption was that a master criminal like Minister D would hide the stolen property in an ingenious fashion. Certainly, it would be carefully stowed away 
But one thing they never considered was that the document may just be hiding in plain sight. In the end, the stolen dispatch was in front of them the whole time, resting conveniently in a card rack on the wall. There it was, in plain sight. And throughout the centuries, many have puzzled over these events, the events of the resurrection of Jesus. And they have searched beneath the carpet. They have peeled back the wallpaper. They have dismantled the furniture, you could say, in search of an explanation. How is it that we explain what happens here? And many times the resurrection is explained away simply to neutralize it and the potential claims that are pressed upon us if it is true. Some, like the chief priest, purport that the body was simply stolen by Jesus' disciples. Others suggest that Jesus never truly died, but revived in the tomb, pressed away the stone, and exited his grave. And still others contend that his body remains in a grave somewhere in Palestine, lost to time and history, and that his disciples were just hallucinating, or perhaps they saw a ghost. All of these, of course, are possibilities within the realm of what could have happened. But what if the truth lies in plain sight? What if God did actually raise Jesus from the dead? What if this was not a hallucination? What if it was not a ghost? What if the tomb was actually empty? What if the reports we hear, even the guard reporting that the tomb was empty, what if they are true? What if Jesus did exit death, trampling it down beneath his feet? What are the implications for us? And that's what's critical for us on this Easter Sunday to consider and to contemplate. What are the implications for us? Two things that we'll look at briefly this morning ahead of our celebration of the Lord's Supper. First, an implication is that we have now a new freedom in this risen Jesus. And second, we have a new song. Let's look at each. First, a new freedom. Now, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary, as they travel to the tomb, when they arrive, there is an earthquake and they're confronted by an angel and the angel proclaims the resurrection, announcing that Jesus is not there. Then, on their way to tell the other disciples, they actually encounter the resurrected Son of God. Significantly, in verse 10, Jesus says this, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and they will see me. It's easy to miss the significance of these words But the phrase, go and tell my brothers, is of programmatic significance when we're reading the Gospel of Matthew, because it's not actually the first time that it appears, but rather Matthew, in bringing the story together, draws attention for us, draws our attention to this phrase, my brothers. Because if you remember back to the beginning of this series in chapter 1, in verse 2, In Jesus' genealogy, that is his family tree, we read these words. Abraham was the father of Isaac, 
and Isaac, the father of Jacob, and Jacob, the father of Judah, and his brothers. The sequence of the genealogy there is broken up. It's not X, the father of Y, but X, the father of Y, and his brothers. And so we have to ask the question, why is the sequence broken up for us here? What are we being directed to? And of course, the story reaches back to Genesis 44. And it's there in Genesis 44 that we learn about Judah, the fourth son of Jacob. And though he was a man full of malice and greed, in Genesis 44, he does something heroic. And he does something heroic for the sake of his little brother, Benjamin. Benjamin had been arrested by his estranged brother, Joseph, being held in Egypt. And then the brothers were instructed to return home, back to the promised land, without their little brother. And so Judah then intercedes in verse 18 and gives a lengthy speech as to why Joseph should not hold Benjamin. And then he concludes his speech with these words. Now, therefore, please let your servant, that is himself, remain instead of the boy as a servant to my Lord and let the boy go back with his brothers. Remarkably, Judah sacrifices himself for his little brother that his brother might return to his father. And Matthew, in using this phrase, Jesus in taking up these words reminds us of the realities of the freedom that he brings into our lives. That yes, Judah sacrificed himself for the sake of his little brother. And this is the story that Jesus is then telling, that he is the one who has given himself for the sake of his brothers. Judah was a shadow and a picture of the fuller reality that was to come. And on the backside of all their failures and all their faults over that final holy week in which the disciples had fled from Jesus, they had left him alone. They had denied him. They had betrayed him. Go and tell my brothers that they will see me in Galilee. And friends, this was Jesus' subtle invitation for them to come and see and to know that they were forgiven, that all was right and all was well, that an offering had been made, that a perfect righteous sacrifice had been made on their behalf. And it had been received by God the Father. And now because that offering had been received, they too could be received. And friends, it's not just the disciples who are received. It's you and it's me as well. We are received through our perfect elder brother Jesus who's gone ahead of us. Who goes to the cross on our behalf. Makes an offering of himself. Stands in as righteousness for us. And now we are counted righteous in him and in him alone. This is the gift. It's the freedom of a clean conscience. It's the freedom from guilt and shame. It's the freedom from our faults and failures that they can no longer hold us. They can no longer enslave us and entrap us. Jesus saying, go and tell my brothers, is the invitation for us to hear about the forgiveness of our sins in his death and in his resurrection. But this gift also doesn't come without a challenge. 
John Newton, the slave trader, hymn writer turned Anglican pastor, points this out in writing a letter to a fellow minister. His minister was despairing and discouraged, and he actually thought that because of his sins, there was no way that he would ever be able to be forgiven by God. Newton very carefully writes back to him, and listen to what he says. He says, when we burden ourselves with our many sins, we are apt to overlook the very greatest of them, unbelief. For what can be a greater proof of stubbornness and pride than to dare to contradict the express word of God, to say that he will not pardon when he declares that he will, to persist in it that he will make differences when he has assured us that he will make none. And friends, this is the freedom that God gives us through Jesus. That yes, the express word of God says that God will not make differences in our sins, that he will not forgive some and then fail to forgive others. Know that God forgives sinners. That God reconciles us to himself. He doesn't just bring us halfway and then drop us off and tell us to do the rest. No, he does all of the reconciling. And that's what the freedom of Easter proclaims, that a righteous sacrifice has been received. And it's been received on your behalf and on my behalf. And so we're invited to take up this freedom in faith, to know that God cancels sins through Jesus, and when he cancels them, he makes an end of them. But second, we also see that this resurrection of Jesus moves us into a new song. One interesting theme throughout the Gospel of Matthew is to see from Jesus' birth to his death to his resurrection that he was mired in controversy, constantly in conflict. His life provoked extreme reactions. In the beginning, Herod hears of his birth and actually exterminates the children around Bethlehem, all male children two years and, un and younger. However, on the flip side of that, the Magi, learning the same news of Jesus' advent, travel from the east and they come to worship him. We see the same dynamic at the end as the religious authorities. They heard that the tomb was empty and so they paid hush money to the soldiers to keep quiet about what had happened, that was going to be inconvenient. However, the women in verse nine, and then the disciples in verse 16, meet Jesus and they worship him, bowing at his feet. And so for these magi, and for these women, and for these disciples, suddenly their fear, their grief, their bewilderment, and even their uncertainty about what was going to come in future days, all of that was overwhelmed by one reality. And that reality was that a human being was up from the dead. That had gone, he had gone down into death and exited out the other side and was alive. And so they bow in his presence. They prostrate themselves. They offer worship to him. A new song fills their mouths and passes through their lips because they are in the presence of something greater than themselves. Why? Why do they worship? 
the resurrection of Jesus stubbornly insist everything about our outlook and our on, on life and our present experience of life is changed by his resurrection. No matter our circumstances, no matter our conditions, no matter our failures, and no matter our faults, no matter our situation, and no matter our suffering, the resurrection supplies a gratitude that pierces through the darkest of nights. And friends, it is this gratitude that we receive in the resurrection that is fueled by hope. This is because Jesus' resurrection is not just a private or an individual reality. In 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 20, the Apostle Paul tells us that Jesus is the first fruits of a much greater harvest, that he is the pioneer who's gone out before us. And because he is up from the dead, that you too and all who believe in him will be up from the dead as well. That is not a questionable reality. That because the reality is Jesus is alive, that you too will share in his life. And let's be clear about something. This life that is promised, this life that is announced in the gospel doesn't refer to a disembodied life of heavenly bliss on clouds and with harps. What this life refers to is a re-embodied life after death in a physical world dwelling with God. The claim of the resurrection is that God will take this body, that he will take this body from decay, he will take this body from destruction, and he will transform it, and he will raise it to newness of life. Along with this, the promise is that God will renew the earth, freeing it from the corruption and the pollution of sin, that he'll restore creation in its beauty and in all of its functions, and he'll restore humans in their relationship with one another, their relationship with God. And the message of the resurrection is that alienation the alienation caused by sin will at long last be over. And so we're not simply talking about a magic trick when Jesus is proclaimed up from the dead, but rather a much larger narrative of God's great program to renew heaven and earth. And the pioneer of that is none other than his only son, Jesus, a risen from the dead the pioneer, the first fruits, and because he is the first fruits, you are guaranteed as well. And friends, the great promise is that no longer will we be alienated from God, no longer necessary like Adam and Eve to hide in our shame and disgrace, that in the world to come and in that life we will be freed from all the memory of sin, from all of its disaster, from all of its scorn, from all of its pain, and that you will be walking in relationship with God. No longer will we be alienated from one another, living in distrust and suspicion. This will be removed. No longer will there be deprivation and want. The world will be filled with plenty. No longer will there be depression and addictions. No longer will there be violence in schools and the death of children. 
No longer will there be selfishness and greed driven by fear. No longer will there be nations in rage fomenting war and rumors of war. All the weapons of warfare will be bent into productive items. No longer will there be cancer and heart conditions. No longer will there be diseases and dementia. These things will be forgotten because these things, these conditions of our suffering will be destroyed. They are trampled down along with death itself by our Lord Jesus. And friends, it is because of this great hope, because of the grandeur of this vision of what God is doing in Jesus to renew all things, it's because of that great hope that we are people who stubbornly insist on singing a new song. No matter the circumstances of life, singing a new song, bowing ourselves before Jesus, offering thanks to him, living in gratitude, because this is the reality that will visit our world and is guaranteed by Jesus' own resurrection. Yes, the truth is hiding in plain sight. We need not go pull back the carpet peel back the wallpaper or dismantle the furniture. Jesus is up from the dead. Jesus is alive. He's proclaimed amongst the nations. He's believed on. And friends, today he offers us freedom. And he supplies us with hope. And so let's embrace those two gifts and know all that is ours in him. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we boldly approach your throne this morning in and through your Son, Jesus Christ, by whom we have been adopted as sons and daughters of your kingdom. In him we are your beloved children. In him we are granted the privilege of prayer, being assured that you, our gracious Father, give only good things to us as we ask and as we seek and as we knock. We pray this morning for the hallowing of your name throughout all the earth. In all places everywhere, may your name, holy and worthy, be exalted above all others. Not to us, O oh Lord, not to us, but to your name be glory forever and ever. We long for the day when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess the name of Jesus to your honor and praise. In particular, we ask that you multiply grace towards us, that we may honor your name, not only with our lips, but in our lives. Grant us to acknowledge rightly, free from all hypocrisy, the ruin that is ours by nature, so that we may give ourselves entirely to your Son, offering ourselves by your mercy as living and holy sacrifices. We also pray for our world, asking that your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. We remember before you the nations of the earth, the peoples of every tribe and tongue, asking that those estranged from you, stumbling in darkness and in error, would be brought into the light and truth of salvation, which is to know you, the only true God, and your Son, Jesus Christ, whom you sent. 
Illumine their minds. Grant them faith through the preaching of your word. And we pray that you multiply your grace to us, that your will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. Renew us by your spirit to obey you truly and fully, following your commandments without contradiction or negotiation. Purge from within us our lesser loves that draw us to follow our own wisdom. Teach us to renounce our own wills and all the desires of the flesh that we may walk in the love and fear of your name. In the midst of our frailty and in the midst of our mortality, we are mindful of our dependence upon you, the giver of all good gifts. In you we live and we move and we have our being. You open your hand and satisfy our needs. And so give us this day our daily bread, providing what is needful for our welfare and for our maintenance. Teach us to be thankful for your good gifts that sustain us and direct us to be generous to those without. We are reminded that we cannot hide our sins or conceal our faults from you. No secrets are hidden from your sight. And so we acknowledge today that we are poor sinners, full of weakness and failure, who constantly grow faint and, grow, and grow, go astray from your way. Our guilt is great. But you multiply your wondrous deeds and thoughts toward us. You are good and forgiving, abounding in steadfast love and mercy to all who fear you. Create in us a clean heart, O God. Lead us in the way of repentance. Teach us to do your will. And in the knowledge of your mercies, we ask that you transform us, teaching us to forgive those who have sinned against us. Free us to forgive our brothers and sisters from the heart. Keep us from requiring of others what you do not require of us. May we not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Give us grace, O God. In the midst of this life in which we are assailed by the world, by the flesh, and by the evil one. We ask that you sustain us by your power, that we not stumble in the weakness of our flesh. Lead us not into temptation. Deliver us from evil. Strengthen us by your spirit. Clothe us with your armor to resist all temptations and to persevere that we may at last triumph in your kingdom to feast with the King of kings, our Lord Jesus Christ, who taught us to pray, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, Hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen.